One of the things that people don't realize is that stressors, things that cause us stress or things that are going to be problems are not usually one ofs. That if you deal with traffic problems, chances are there's always you're always going to run into people that get upset when there's traffic. And so a lot of times people go, oh, I wish I would have said this or I wish I thought of that. Well, it's going to happen again. And so the term plan spontaneity comes into effect where we know the problem's going to happen and you prepare for it by having a humorous line or a joke ready when it comes up. Hello everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers, experts in influence, people that have truly mastered a particular tool of influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, some of us would say that we don't have a funny bone in our bodies, where for others, being funny comes naturally without seemingly very little thought or effort. For our next guest, Tim Gard, using humor is not only natural, but it is also a skill he has chosen to consciously master as a tool for yielding epic influence. Tim has had first-hand experience of what it is to learn, earn a living in, a, in stressful environments, having worked in state and federal government in human services, and as you'll hear more about, also spending time as a fraud investigator, not known for its lack of stress. He was, he was in fact known as the funny fed, in inverted commas, as he continually and consciously developed humor as a way of diffusing situations, creating connections, and immediately disarming even the most challenging of conversations. Tim is now one of the most successful speakers on the planet when it comes to using humor as a tool in business and in life. He is the creator of Comic Vision, a method and philosophy of using humor to influence first yourself and then other people. He is also the author of Just Plain Funny and the co-author of Motivational Leaders and Humor Me. Now that's the official part. On a personal note, I have, I have known and traveled with Tim for more than a decade. I have witnessed him get on and off airplanes with fake chicken feet hanging out of his luggage because, in his words, no one is going to accidentally take home a bag with chicken feet hanging out of it. I have, I've seen him hand out his own policy manuals at hotels his own policy manual that he has literally created and had printed when faced with the immortal line, I'm sorry, sir, but that's against our policy. And, and I'm not joking here, literally sit on a flight drawing in a coloring book made up entirely of pictures of himself just to dissuade anyone from sitting next to him. Side note, that strategy is always, and without exception, successful. So other than just being, for all of those reasons and many more, one of my favorite people on the planet. And incidentally, also the MC at my wedding, who could forget a room of 60 people playing nose flutes between speeches. Why have I asked him to be on the podcast? What has humor or the mastering of humor really got to do with influence? It's, it's in being around him that I have learnt an incalculable amount about using the skills of a humorist to break states and behaviors, including my own in people and situations 
often behaviours that have been stagnant for years. I've, I've learned how humour can immediately and effectively de-escalate situations or disarm opponents in a way where no other communication or negotiation skill has come close. Humour as a tool has a way of cutting through the noise, of breaking down the walls, of building bridges and of holding attention that I have come to believe genuinely makes it one of the most underestimated tools of influence available. And that's not even counting what Tim and these tools have given me personally. The ability to use humour to walk through life with a sense of lightness, to stay in a resilient and resourceful state, and there is nothing more influential than somebody in a resilient and resourceful state. And to maintain perspective in what feels like really heavy situations. As he says, you do it first for yourself, and then for other people. In this conversation, we, we break down in a myriad of different ways tools around maintaining your own comic vision, including how and why Hillary Clinton was able to diminish the question, but not the person, by using humour in her response to Donald Trump when it came to her business experience. And again, diminishing the question, but not the person. There's a lot of power in that. The role of planned spontaneity and why it's easier than it sounds. How to actively use humour to solve problems, aka the chicken feet in the bag. Why it is essential to stay present to the stories that are around us and the moments that are around us every single day. Why when using storytelling as a tool, the goal should always be to live and relive rather than tell and retell. And how, I love this word, how to dismount gracefully when an attempt at humour fails. And sometimes it will. So sit back and prepare to tune in your own style of comic vision because like everything we talk about on this podcast, it looks different for us all. Please enjoy my conversation with a special individual from my world, the irrepressible and frankly irreplaceable Tim Gard. Let's kick off the way that the way that I always kick off, which is with the question, do you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert? I believe that I'm an extrovert. I think that everybody has both introvert and extrovert tendencies, but tendencies, but I, I would say I'm an extrovert and uh, clear and I would be all the way at the end of the scale. <laughs> If there is I would a agree with that. 10, I'd be like a 12 in the extrovert scale. <laughs> the reason I ask, and it's interesting on the topic of, of humor and using humor, is that I hear a lot of people say, you know, that's, that's fine for that person. They're an extrovert. It's fine for them to get up and share their ideas. That's fine for them to tell jokes. It's, it's fine for them to get a laugh because they're an extrovert. But one of the things we're going to talk about today is that it, humor and having a comic vision isn't just for extroverts. It's for everybody. That's, you know, that's correct. It's that it's like saying you have to be an extrovert to be a leader or mm. it's just like any other skill that's out there. You some people have a higher level of adaptability or are, are actually more comfortable with it to start. But anyone can learn to use humor as an as an influence tool. So, well, let's just jump into that. I I believe wholeheartedly that 
humor is one of the most underestimated forms of influence. If you look at the the people I know and the people I work with and the people in my network, the ones that have mastered the ability to be able to use humor as a tool, not tell jokes, and we'll get into that in a second, they're two separate things, use humor as a tool, are the ones that are, have been able to take a message that extra 10% where it actually emotionally connects with the people that they're trying to reach. And I loved, um, I loved this time, if you look at the US presidential campaign, how humor was used as a very impactful tool. And if you look at Obama and the way he actually signed out of his presidency, which was, he said, Obama out. Which doesn't sound funny when I say it, but for him to finish on that note, finish with humor, shows that he understands the power of what that does with the people you're trying to connect with. And how have you seen that change over the years, the use of humor and the the prominence that humor is given? I think that it's when it's used strategically the way he did, then it's it's a even a stronger tool. If someone is always making, you know, telling jokes or they're constantly trying to be funny, nobody knows where and when they're trying to be serious and it diminishes our ability to connect. I think more than any other time, Julie, you know, people do business with those they like. And so humor helps increase our likability. It helps us connect with people very quickly. In politics and things like that, it can be a really scary or, you know, it can be a double-edged sword, so to speak. Uh, I was I was actually just writing an article where Hillary Clinton was, uh, when she was running against Donald Trump, that she got beat up quite a bit about the fact that he knew more about business than she did. And in the United States, when you when you declare bankruptcy, it's called Chapter 11. I know we have an international audience, but um, it's called Chapter 11. That's the title is covered under. But she was in an interview. This interviewer said, Donald Trump knows more about business than you. He's written more books about it. And she said, he has written more books, but all of those books on business end at Chapter 11. It was just the a gold line. It was gold. It was just gold. And and it did not come up again in the presidency. Someone, one of her staffers wrote that line for her. And unfortunately, she then tried to follow up and explain it, kind of like I did at the beginning, which is not good. But what happened was it was the end of it. That issue ended. It was used effectively. The humor was used effectively. Mission accomplished. Okay, so let's just, we're going to break, we're going to head into some hows, but let's just break that down for a moment. So you've got someone who is traditionally not known for her humor. She's, she, she's quite introverted and she's quite serious as a, as a human being. And you've got a very serious topic, which is her ability to be able to economically run an entire nation effectively. And that whole issue, which you're right, that whole issue was taken off the table by one well-delivered piece of humor. So what is the power of that? How did that, how does, how does that happen? Well, I think that in this particular instance, a great question that people don't understand that they probably talked about that for hours behind the scenes before they actually would have allowed her to do that. And then actually even practiced the line that's out there. And what it was is that it didn't Humor that's used to diminish somebody or something uh, is, a, is where you start getting into trouble. And what she did was diminish the question. 
you know. Uh, uh, so she, she didn't diminish up, Trump. She didn't she diminish did, his, but she diminished the question. Essentially talking here about how to use humor as a de-escalation tool to de-escalate a situation, to take the, the energy and the intensity out of that situation and just diffuse it, which is what she did. And you're saying that the key to that, you know, for anyone who sat there about to have a high intensity conversation and thinking, well, I can crack a joke in the middle of it, but quite frankly, that's going to go down like a bag of potatoes. It's not, but, it, the, the key to it is that humour, you don't make fun of the person. That's correct. Is that the key to it is, first of all, it may seem like it's spontaneous, but it's more planned spontaneity, is that she was ready for that. It was literally the end of an issue because she diminished it. So one of the techniques is to to diminish the issue, not the person. Mm-hmm. And then the other one would be to diffuse it, that she is literally diffusing it as a campaign problem. Um, that right after that, I don't remember exactly what she brought up, but then she moved on to a subject that she was more strong in, that she was stronger to speak about. She actually took command. Very strategic use of humor. So we don't all have... Um we don't, we don't all have speechwriters. Wouldn't that be amazing, though, if we all had yeah. a speechwriter just permanently following us around with the best, most witty line to come out of our mouths? We mouse. just yell, yeah, that something happens and you go, line! <laughs> and I, <laughs> like, if you could have that and a soundtrack at the same time, it would be amazing. However, we, we don't all have that. And especially in the moment, you know, when you walk away and you think, oh, that would have been the perfect thing to say in that moment, and it just didn't come. So what... For those of us who don't have our own speechwriters, so that's no, that's number one. You don't make it personal. You diminish the situation or a question. You don't diminish a person. How how do we look for this? The second question is how do we find those moments where it's both appropriate and helpful to use humor? One of the things that people don't realize is that stressors, things that cause us stress or things that are going to be problems are not usually one of's that if you deal with traffic problems, chances are there's always you're always going to run into people that get upset when there's traffic. And so a lot of times people go, oh, I wish I would have said this or I wish I thought of that. Well, it's going to happen again. And so the term planned spontaneity comes into effect where we know the problem's going to happen and you prepare for it by having a humorous line or a joke ready when it comes up. I spoke at a conference there in Australia, and the customer was one that uh, works with news operators, newsstand operators, and they hear a lot about people trying to have electronic um, downloads rather than print of news and uh, magazines and things like that. And so I wrote a joke for the uh, for the person who was running the conference that went. Uh, I read recently that if you write your negative thoughts down and throw them away, you'll feel better. Then the punchline was, I feel better, but I miss my iPad. <laughs> what you're saying is if you if you have a situation, I love this, if you have a situation that's coming up again, and it, so rather than relying on I'm not that type of spontaneously funny person, no, if you, if you have a situation that's coming up over and over again that needs diffusing or um, that you're stuck for a response – then sit down and proactively go, right, how do I use humor just to cut this, just to take it out of the room? Yes. Or and get some help. Practice it. 
you know, you can try it a few times and say the line and, and try different things. And you're going to find out that that uh, people will help you write your own material. If you write something that you think is funny and nobody laughs, it's not funny. Because the two, and I am by no, I mean, I go to you as an expert on humor every time, more so than anybody else in the world. But the two pieces of advice that I do give people if they're about to present an idea or they want to, you know, they want to up their impact is number one, don't tread on yourself. Don't, don't tread on yourself. If you, when you start to watch comedians, watch, they will stop at the end of a joke and they will wait you out. They will literally stop talking. And I have known comedians who will not say another word until for like 30 seconds. And then it becomes the pause. Like everybody's just sat there going, another pause is funny. You know, and, and I've also known comedians who have said, who have stopped and gone, no, that was funny. I don't know if you noticed, but that was really funny. You know, they, mm-hmm. will, they will wait you out until you, until you laugh. And so I'm not suggesting that you do that, but don't tread on yourself. Give it a couple of seconds for people's brains to catch up because often I think we say something humorous and if people don't laugh in a millisecond, we get so nervous we keep going. And the truth That's is correct. they're still That's- thinking about what you said 20 seconds ago. You've just got to give them some time to catch up. Well, I'm sure that there were people in that odd in those those newscasters sitting there going, well, did Hillary Clinton just make a joke? Did she just tell a joke? Yeah. And and then somebody went, well, that's not a bad joke. Well, then she then tried to explain the joke, which was, like you say, a contradiction about what she should have done. But you want to pause, let it soak in and let them think about it, because if you don't, then, um, you know, there are a lot of factors involved here is that you want to give them the time to make their own decision about it. Um, there are, you have to realize not everybody speaks English at the same level of comprehension. We have international, um, all of our meeting groups, our conferences, you know, if you're in a Skype call like this or anything like that, you may have people that speak English as a second language. We all just have to give people time and just kind of slow down and let it soak in. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about your background a little because I think it's important. And I know, you know, I know you, we've known each other for many years. And so the the story that I love that I've heard you tell about how you got into this world, the world of humor, the world of traveling around the globe, literally, and teaching people how to use humor as a tool to influence other people, but also influence their own minds and how they perceive events is you started out as a fraud investigator, fraud investigator, which I just love I, by itself. You betcha. I, I actually started as an eligibility caseworker, kind of like a social worker, that people would come in and apply for the food stamp program in the U.S. And based on what they wrote down on a piece of paper, I decided who got food and who didn't get food. One of the most stressful jobs in, in my life. And what I watched was I saw people burn out all around me and I started getting promoted, I think, Julie, more out of attrition and competency that uh, people were burning out and I wasn't burning out. And when I when I became there was an opening for a fraud investigator. And so I went from being a caseworker to going out and investigating welfare fraud and it was fascinating that so many of my other people that were in the business, you know, were sitting in a meeting one time and this guy goes, well, they lied to me. And I said, it's fraud. You know, <laughs> this is this is what happens. It, you know, if you're a fraud investigator, the odds are high. Someone's going to lie to you. You can't get mad. 
You just need to get really good at what you do. And um, I did that for about six years and then went to work for the federal government for USDA Food Nutrition Service, where I was a management analyst then in Denver, Colorado, where I oversaw food stamp operations for Utah and Colorado. And so I'd been both a caseworker, an investigator, and then was a fed overseeing the operations. And I started to get, you know, my agency um, would have to have somebody that represented the programs or they needed somebody that would speak at conferences. So they started loaning me out to, uh, to conferences. And then I had to do my regular job too. But uh, they would send me to conferences, and I got to be known as a, a funny fe- as the funny fed, the which is funny kind of an fed, o- the funny fed, which is an oxymoron, I think. And the and then one day somebody offered me money to to speak at a conference, and it was so it was mind boggling that uh, there was an industry out there around that, and so I started started studying the craft and have really spent a lot of time taking the things that I did naturally and and trying to be the best that I can at it. How do we, again, humor is this under underappreciated tool, I think. I think people put it in a box of either that's not me, they put, the, put, they put it in a box of um, terrifying or they put mm-hmm. it in a box of that's great for the pub, you know, it's great for, mm-hmm. for lesser intellects. But, you know, I'm talking about some pretty serious stuff here. So moving all those boxes to one side, you know and I know that the ability to use humor within a story, the ability to use stories full stop and then be able to weave humor into stories will emotionally connect you to your audience, up your impact and also up your ability to people to take action as a result of what you're trying to say. So how do you, and I've heard so many of your stories over the years, how do you find your stories? Because some of your stories are incredible. How do you find them? And then how do you process them in your head so that they can come out of your mouth as humor? Well, the first thing is, I think we need to be open. You've got to be open to paying attention to the stories. There's a lot of people that that are not, you know, Lou Heckler talks about being present and in the now that the more present and in the now we are, the more we're going to see the stories and then realize their potentiality in the future. I'll give you a quick one. A couple of years ago, I was in a car accident where a person hit me from behind. And I don't want to ruin the story, Julie, because I lived. But I, I, um, I'm so I, was taken to, I was taken to hospital. And while I'm in the ambulance, the uh, paramedic... I was telling the paramedic, I need somebody, I need you to contact this person I was meeting and let him know what's occurred and that we're going to have to reschedule our appointment. So I hand her my phone, she texts something, and then turned the phone off and put it in my backpack. Well, I didn't find out that night until she, what she texted was, and I have a screenshot of it, but what she texted was, this is the paramedic, Tim's been in a car accident, he's not going to make it. What? No. She meant to say, to the meeting. She left off, to the meeting. Oh, that's awful. And the lady that got the message was just beside herself. It's funny now. You know, Carol Burnett said comedy can be tragedy plus time. But um, she got in a hurry and didn't send the whole text. And 
So I thought to myself, that's funny. I've used that on stage since then. And the fact that it's true that I got a screenshot of it, all of those things together makes me be, I'm, I'm able to use that story as, as the fact that three words can make a huge difference on what your story is and what the impact is, that we need to plan those things out. So you've got two parts to that. You've got the A, noticing the story, finding the story and seeing it. And speakers are great at that because they live, they earn their living, they feed their families through storytelling. But for the rest of us, you've, you've firstly got to notice and go, right, I'm going to pop that story, that thing that just happened, because I think it's got some potential. I'm just going to pop it to the back of my brain. I'm going to keep hold of that. Then the second thing that you've got is you said, tweak it a little bit. You take the story and you just manage to find that gold, that piece of gold, that grain of, of, um, grain of the message and pull that out and make it the hero. So how do you do those two things? Okay. So part of it is, is the fact that I, because I've been doing it for over 20 years, there is, you know, I'm able to do it, you know, pretty much in the moment, but for, for our listeners, for people that are listening, a lot of times if something is funny, then we just stop right there. What they need to do is they need to realize they have the ability to exaggerate a little bit. Um, You know some of my stories, the big sweaty guy in the middle seat story is probably about 94% totally true. Part of it is exaggeration. And we utilize this term, and I don't know who developed it, but it's called theater of the mind that in telling the story, we need to be able to tell it in such a way that the audience can picture it. And we do have the ability to blow it up just a little bit. Our friend Yossi Ginsberg was telling me one time that he was really struggling when he was working on with the, uh, the movie Jungle, that the screenwriter was saying, this is not a narrative of what happened. It's a it's a film. It's an entertaining film. It's mm-hmm. not a documentary. That's what it was. And it's just not a some background for anybody who's listening, Yossi Ginsberg, who's also a podcast guest, so that's an episode to, to check out. Um, he had an incredible experience in the Amazon jungle that was then turned into a movie by Hollywood. And he, I think, was the executive producer, which put him in an interesting position because he's trying to... And he lost two friends during that journey, which is obviously very, very significant for him and for for them and their families. Um, So he's trying to tell the truth of this story and do it justice and pay it respect. But then it's also, it's a movie. So you've got the producer and the director of the movie going, and we also need to create a movie out of this. So it's not going to be word for word perfect. It's not a documentary of the exacting, you know, this was the exact words that someone said. And so when we're using storytelling, we do have theater of the mind and the ability to take uh, a story and enhance it a little bit. Now, interestingly enough, in Yossi's case, he had to actually tame it down because it was so intense. It wasn't a matter of exaggerating. It was a matter of taming it down. But but for our listeners, it's about using the words that help people see it in their mind. And if we exaggerate it a little bit, then it, I think it can be funnier. Um, something that you've said to me over the years, which I I was saying to you before we got on this call, I, ha- I, I would literally quote you two or three times a week um, 
with people that I work with or that I coach. And, and that is, you do not tell and retell a story. You live and you relive a story. And what I love about that, I use it as a way of inviting somebody to use their whole body. Because what tends to happen is when we tell it, we think, okay, I'm going to tell a story. So, so we stand there, we don't move, and we tell, us, we tell the story. Mm-hmm. And it loses all of its power. But if you invite someone to relive that story, suddenly their body starts moving. Suddenly they might, you know, shift characters. Some, they might change their voice. Their pace changes. Something very fundamental happens when you start reliving a story as opposed to telling a story. Yes, and the very first time I, I actually had experienced that was Lou Heckler was who told – that's actually – I heard that from Lou Heckler originally, Julie, was to tell – we don't tell and retell. We live and relive you watch these speakers or anybody get up and if you're just telling a story, you're not present or in the now. If you relive it, then I think um, your own body actions, like you say, uh, they become more and more congruent. And I think that one of the keys, as we're just talking about this, it kind of popped into my brain, is that if you're going to embellish the story, then you need to be consistent in the embellishment that, you know, you don't say one time, say, well, it was a hundred people saw this or something. And then the next time you tell it, it was 10 million is that our, if we're going to embellish the story a little bit, then be consistent in that embellishment. Another interesting thing about humor is it's the perfect tool to use to break people's state. And what, and what I mean by breaking state is we've all been in that experience where we walk into a room, we have something to deliver, be it at home, as parents, as partners, or be it at work. And there's a state in the room. Either people are frustrated, they're tired, something bad's happened before you even walked in. You walk into an environment that's already existing. And Huber has this beautiful ability to break people's state. And I don't know if it was you that said it, I've got it down here. If they're laughing, they're listening. It brings mm-hmm. people into the now. It makes people present. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, one of my favorite all-time movies is Young Frankenstein. And have you, do you know the movie? I have Julie? not seen it, no. Well, there's a scene in there. Gene Wilder uh, plays Dr. Frankenstein. It's a parody. It's very, very funny. Peter Boyle plays the monster. And Peter Boyle is in a cell. And Gene Wilder goes in. And the monster's going to kill him, and Gene Wilder's kind of trying to distract him. And he walks in, and he goes, you know, of all the things he could say, but he walks in, the monster's going to grab him, and he goes, hiya, handsome. And the, and the you know, Frankenstein goes, eh? and And just starts telling him what a fantastic-looking man he is. And it's so unexpected that it does exactly what you're saying. It's reformatting the moment. It made the monster stop and think. And, you know, there's a lot of ways that we can do that, too, where, um, you know, I walk out a lot of times with audiences and tell people that I'm not going to have them hugging each other or singing Kumbaya or anything like that. And then I'll tell them a funny story about one time this guy tried to get everybody to touch fingers with the person next to them and say something personal they always wanted to say, but were afraid to say it. And half the group got up and walked out on him. <laughs> and and he said to me, Tim, what did I do wrong? And I said, Carl, these are truck drivers, you know. 
um, they're more comfortable with pull my finger rather than 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 touch my finger and and so in that few moments telling a funny story and taking away from the fact that I'm not going to make people do things during my training seminar that they didn't want to do anyway um, that reformats the moment so you're you're exactly correct I think it's a great tool for that. and it, it also it releases tension you know to, to be able to laugh is is to release tension um, I classic example of that from having traveled with you so many times is your chicken feet, which I <laughs> have given me so much humor. And, and it's, it's one tiny little thing, but has just made our trips such a joy over the years. Can you, I'm not even going to attempt to explain the no, chicken feet. No, Can you explain so the, the chicken feet? Knows, just so the audience knows we're not talking about my feet. No. Um, no, no, no. Years ago, I started traveling, and if you've ever been on an airplane, you put your your um, you put your carry-on bag, and what do you what would you call it there? Carry-on bag in the bin? Is it the bin up above the? Oh, the the yeah, the hold all above okay. you when you're on the plane. Yeah, so the so you would put your carry-on bag, um, and you go to put it in the overhead bin. Well, you go to put it in wheels first. If it doesn't fit, you have to put it sideways. Well, people would come behind me after I already put my bag sideways, if it didn't fit, move my bag around so that the bin wouldn't close, and then I would have to check my bag. So I got a rubber chicken, and it's a life-size, I should say life-size. It's a, it's a rubber it's a chicken. chicken. Life-size. It's a chicken life-size, I guess. And it is a regular rubber chicken, and then I have... Only I've got about, um, you have to help me here, six inches, seven inches of chicken feet sticking out. I don't know what the metrics are I, on I that. Have, I have never measured them. It's just a sizable okay. amount of chicken feet. There's a chunk There's a chunk of chicken feet sticking out. Well, I, would, I have a clamshell bag, and I would put the chicken feet sticking out. And what I found was people would come behind me, go to grab my bag, see the chicken feet sticking out, and they would just put it back. They didn't want to mess with the bag. It was nature's way of saying, leave the bag alone. And so... But that didn't work, it, did it? You took it... Because I've been with you when you get off the plane, all the bags are coming, you know, coming round and round and round and round. And then there's this bag that comes out with chicken feet. And just to talk about how contagious humor is, and you took this to another level, which we'll get to in a second, but everybody would be staring at this bag that looks like it's got a chicken trapped in it whose feet are sticking out at the end. And the smiles on everybody and on the baggage handlers and on the woman when we check in. I've seen you be upgraded I don't know how many times because those chicken feet start a conversation that, and the reason I brought this up when we were talking about breaking state is that somebody that is in a repetitive mode that has probably dealt with aggravated situations all day and who is in a particular state, and we've all come across those people, they pick up your bag to check it in. And you just see, like, it's just like, does not compute. Something rewires in it's, their brain and they look at you and they're suddenly open to a different experience. And that is the power of something so simple as chicken feet, but it's of humor in general. And it, it's, um, it's using humor to solve a problem. And yet it's so unexpected. Um, do you remember, did you remember the little itty bitty chickens I have? They're little. I do remember. They're, they're, they're I little. randomly find them in various corners of my home. <laughs> well, for the listeners, there's, um, it's a tiny chook. It's a little chicken. It's, uh, it's, a uh, about, uh, 
Um, it's about the size of your thumbnail, and they're just little tiny um, chickens that I give to people. They make people laugh. I've had people put me in, they'll look at them and laugh, put me in a suite. They're human connectors, Julie. This laughter, uh, that when both you and the other person you either show these things to or give to them, it connects us. And we all smile and laugh in the same language. When you, when you laugh and they laugh, you're connected. Mm. And in, in a world today where people are more socially inept than any other time, we need this. And it does, I mean, it's not even like somebody would look at it and go, well, I understand the neurolinguistics behind the little itty bitty chook. It's not that. They just look at it and they laugh. And sometimes that's enough. Just to finish the story, what was the what was the next thing you did when the chicken chicken feet didn't work? People were still oh, stealing gotta, your bag. Unbelievably, people it. still I thought. Mm -hmm. I put a big bag on a sign, the whole length of the bag that says, "This is not your bag." Many bags look alike. This isn't your bag because this bag belongs to Tim Guard. And when that didn't work, I have another one that says, "Does this bag make my butt look big?" And all of them make them laugh. It's getting them to just stop for a moment and laugh, and then they pay attention. Yeah, and that is, I think that that's just hit the nail on the head. It's that moment where you step outside of whatever story you're running in your head, whatever mental monologue is going on, and whatever situations you've just come from, and that moment where you just take a breath and go, oh, I have permission. You know, I have permission to be here. You've just invited me to be here. And I'm and I'm I've arrived, and I think that that give, is give, so powerful from an influence people, perspective. People permission to talk with us, Julie. Mm. You know, when people see that, they know they can talk with me. Where a lot of times people talk at and not with. I'm going to take it. One of my final questions, which I think is probably the elephant in the room for everybody when it comes to looking at, at using these tools that you talk about, is. What happens if it falls dead? Yeah, we all live in mortal fear of that moment, be it at a dinner party, be it at a pub, be it worst case scenario on a stage in front of a thousand people where you step out, you have a go at humor, you attempt to tell a funny story and it's just crickets. Mm -hmm. And that's going to happen. I mean, just like anything else we attempt, there's going to be a few times where it's not going to work. Can't get around mm -hmm. it. No way, no way out of it, but through it. So, what do you do? Because I know you've had thousands of those moments. What do you do in those well, moments? How do you handle it? Well, I, I consider it comedy hell. That's the term that I use for it. But here's the way that I look at it is that if it's happening occasionally, you know, you look at your percentages. They're not all going to be hit jokes or it's not all going to be funny. But if you hear more of the crickets than not, then chances are, you know, then you really kind of need to look at either your present, you know, not presentation, at your communication styles. There's a, Alan Wise is a speaker in the U.S. here that says, as speakers, our primary responsibility is to those that hire us, second to our audience, and third to ourselves. So when you're telling, let's say you're telling stories or you're being funny, and it's not about being a speaker, it's that when you look at this is that if you're telling a story and it's supposed to be amusing and you hear crickets all the time, then you I would look at at 
the story, how you're telling it, because it's all about the percentages. It's all about the percentages. It's going to happen to some people. Now, what I will say, I have too many friends that do this thing where they will, uh, they have a, uh, oh, it's, I think they call it an exit line. It would be like, well, my mom thought that joke was funny or, you know, that was funny when I, when I was talking to the Pope yesterday, you know what I mean? Is they, they'll say things like that. And I don't recommend that. You know, if you, if you try something and funny and it's not funny, I think you just keep, you, you do just like you suggested earlier, pause and make sure first that it's not because people, you know, we didn't give people enough time. And then later look back on it and see what you might've left. It's interesting with humor, you can leave out one or two words and it will change the context and it will make something that could have been very funny, not funny anymore. Does that make sense, Julie? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting you say that. You're just reminding me of conversations I've had with comedians where they'll start out with a joke and they'll throw it into they'll throw it into a situation and usually the first few times it won't get a laugh or it'll fall dead and then they'll change a word they'll change a pause they'll change the way that body sits or their facial expression while they tell it so they actually you just reminded me they don't even expect it to be funny the first few times that they say it that's correct is that um we need to see what's missing and i think with the most as someone who does this professionally i would say i pay attention really well I read people really well, and I I look at, I'm a student of neurolinguistic programming and psycholinguistics about the meta messages and about how people respond, but what we want to be able to do is, is, is just realize it doesn't, you know, just because somebody didn't laugh this time or did not laugh as much, then it doesn't mean you're not funny or you don't have that ability, but it may mean that you've edited something out previously that you that when you did get a really good laugh that was there and um, I I think you have to trust yourself you know that if you're going to tell the story if you're in a sales meeting you can also over practice where you you've told this story or you've practiced so much that you're not listening anymore it's all about being present being in the now and then you know if you don't get a laugh You've seen me do, you've seen me on stage do a dismount, you know, like a gymnast have, in my yes. brain. I do a dismount and I move on. So, okay, um, I, I need to give that some context because that sounds very strange. Um, so Tim will literally, is it, it's mentally, isn't it? You don't physically do it. I'll actually, I'll be sitting in a chair and I'll jump up and do kind of a, a partial dismount like a gymnast would. Um, but you don't that, rec- so he recommends that men- so as a gym as a gymnast when you do a dismount it doesn't matter how bad your performance was as a dismount before the dismount but when you jump off the equipment if you make it strong then that's the impression that you leave people with and so you're right. suggesting you, you, you mentally just all right i'm going to dismount off that one and move on that's right and in your mind you you know it's like i've watched these gymnasts will have terrible routines and a great dismount and what it is, is they let it go and you move on. I think you, you use my language in that style it out. <laughs> just if it doesn't go well, style it out. 
Style it out. Style That's it good. out. I, I like that. Uh, but to finish that, to finish that off, I think adjusting your expectations. You know, you're going to try this stuff. It's not going to work the first few times. It might work a little. It's like any other practice. If you want to use it as a tool, adjust your expectations so that you know it's going to be something that you're going to tweak and tweak and tweak until eventually you will get there. That's correct. And look at it as if um, a lot of people have studied leadership. It's not something that all you have to do is use this word, this word, and this word, and suddenly you're a great leader. You practice it. You find the disciplines that work best for you, and you modify until you find your own style. And there are, like I said before, there are visual people. Um, if you know, I mean, you can go to my website. You can see some of the humor props that I've developed over the years that are visual props. Just Tim, it, can I tell them that? TimGuard.com? Yeah, fine. Yeah, just look T-I-M-G-A-R-D.com. You go to, you can see props that I've developed that are visual. And in storytelling and things like that, watch the stories. And then, you know, I think that you watch other people um, as they become great storytellers, Jonathan Winters, there are a lot of great comedians out there that aren't dirty. You know, it doesn't have to be dirty, but look at how well they tell stories. Um, I will say this, a story is as long or as short as it should be. It's not like, oh, you need three minutes or you need that. It's as long or as short as it should be. And the humor is the same way. If people are looking at their watch the whole time you're talking and you think they're when they should be laughing, chances are it's too long. You know, so so, you know, there are a lot of little little tweaks that you can make. But but more than anything else, things are going to fail. It's OK. It's OK. So what's the what's the one piece of advice just to second to last question what's the one piece of advice you would give to someone that's either scared of using humor or doesn't consider themselves to be funny just give them one thing to practice over the coming weeks i would uh i would find what makes you laugh first so who's your favorite comedian what's your favorite television show you know if you like to watch the old jerry seinfeld he's an observational comedian if you like Carrot Top, he's a prop comic, uh, performs in Las Vegas, is find out first what makes you laugh. And then um, look at maybe how you can, you know, if there's things that they do that you can do that would help you be funny. But first of all, it has to be something you find funny. You have to think they're funny first. Okay. All right. Well, it's been such a pleasure. Honestly, the the amount of wisdom in your head is insane. I'm kicking myself already for questions that I haven't asked. But let's let's finish with this one, which is the question I usually finish with. If I could give you, with all my magical powers, if I could give you the stage, actually, I don't need to give you a stage. You're on hundreds of stages a year. But let's just say I created one. I have a stage. And in front of you, I could put every single person that you would want to influence What's the one thing that you would want them to know? Laughter becomes you. We take it for granted that laughter and humor and 
celebration of life are going to happen. And I believe that if we don't plan it, if we don't work on it, then it may not happen as, as often as we as we would like it to be. And 